I want to tell you about an experiment, an experiment run by two Uber drivers in Chicago. Driver A is a Tesla owner with the acceptance rate of 9% and a CR or cancellation rate of 14%. And then driver B is a hybrid renter with an acceptance rate of 15% and a uh, cancellation rate of 23%. This is from the YouTube channel of The Rideshare Guy, where you can learn all about rideshare work, the ups and downs and tricks of driving. And on the screen, you can see the display of two different drivers' phones. They're getting requests for the same job, same distance, same customer. Everything is the same, except the amount of money they're being offered. So the first one we're looking at is Uh, It's a 1702 ride. And there you go. Same ride, 1882. In case you didn't catch that, the only difference is the drivers. One is being offered $17.02 to do the job. The other, $18.82. And it's not a fluke. Here's another trip. Same exact thing. Uh, 2033 versus 1863. What's happening that you can't see is that an algorithm is figuring out exactly how much money each driver will get paid, exactly how much it will take for that driver to accept the trip. And that all starts when a passenger requests a ride. Once you push order or order tab on the ride, on the app, it starts looking for a driver to match you with. That's Sergio Avidian, a gig worker and senior contributor to the Rideshare Guy. I call it almost like a Dutch auction. Uh, It's basically locking in the passenger at a certain price and then shop the trip around one driver to the next. If one declines it, it will definitely move to the next one because they're trying to squeeze that order into their system. And, you know, um, pricing varies from driver to driver to driver and their behavior patterns as well. Sergio has tested this out with different drivers. And it turned out just like the Chicago example. In Los Angeles, we did this with four drivers now sitting side by side, all their phones on. And we did it in downtown L.A., which is a very busy area for Uber and Lyft. We haven't done this on Lyft yet. Lyft is coming up, but we did it on Uber. And we got probably close to 40 identical orders uh, in between four drivers within five minutes, five and a half minutes. And the video is on our channel as well. All 40, between all four drivers was different pricing. On the one hand, it makes sense. Companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Postmates have tons of information about their workers, and they can use it to figure out the lowest price for someone to accept a job. But on the other, a growing body of work says this strategy discriminates against workers. Today on the show, algorithmic wage discrimination in the gig economy. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You might not think that much about algorithms in your daily life, but 
I can guarantee that you're interacting with them. With the rise of big data, companies have begun to tailor their offerings to different consumers based on what they know about us. So, for example, if I live in a less expensive neighborhood than you live in, I might get a lower price for airfare than you're getting. That's Vina Dubal, a law professor at the University of California College of the Law, San Francisco. Vina says it's well understood at this point how this works for consumers. But what she studies and what is less understood is how this works for wages, how it works for people like the rideshare drivers who are getting different wages for the same job. Vina calls it algorithmic wage discrimination. So algorithmic wage discrimination borrows from the idea of consumer price discrimination and attempts to help us to think about how the same thing is happening to um, how people are being paid. So one worker is getting paid differently for the same amount of work this with the same skill level done at the same time based on what a company might know about that individual worker. And these determinations are made algorithmically. And of course, we see this most clearly in, in the on-demand sector where workers don't have guarantees to an hourly wage floor. Um, they don't have guarantees to minimum wage or overtime. So I'm not referring explicitly to discrimination between protected groups of people like mm-hmm. women and men. Um, But I am making a nod to that because I think what we've seen, at least in some instances where the data is clear, um, this practice of paying individuals differently for the same work based on on personalized data um, actually leads to gender-based discrimination. Indeed, in a paper from 2018, a group of economists, including one from Uber, found that women Uber drivers make 7% less on average than men. The paper attributed that gap to driver experience and preferences. And so part of what I've done in in my writing is to say, look, it is a problem. Um, We know that we had equal wages for equal work movement, a feminist movement beginning in the early 20th century that got laws on the books that guaranteed that women earned the same as men. Um, And it's been hard to enforce those laws. We got Title VII on the books after the civil rights movement to ensure that Black people and and white people are supposedly supposed to earn the same amount. We have these moral moral and legal structures in place where we can expect that um, people who are doing the same work are going to get paid the same. And what this practice does is completely undermine that idea, um, throwing it out the window, throwing out the the, um, the winds of these legal and, and social movements and creating new norms about what we can expect at work, what we can expect um, uh, to, to have to accept at work with regard to our wages. So in addition to sort of you know, flying in the face of these of these existing norms. It's also really troubling that um, that workers say that they just are living in a state of constant uncertainty and unpredictability. If you don't know how much you're going to get paid for for your work um, on any given day or on any given week um, or in any given month, then it's very hard to plan. It's very hard to say, well, I'm going to be able to make rent this month or I'm going to be able to put groceries on on the table this month. I mean, listening to you, it sounds like you're saying that discrimination is not that it is happening to someone in a protected class or what we think of, you know, traditionally protected class, but anyone who is on the end of this kind of of wage setting algorithm. 
That's really well put. So while there might be, and in fact, in some instances we know are discrimination based on protected classes, unintentional discriminatory outcomes, what algorithmic wage discrimination really describes is discrimination between individual workers who are getting paid in this way. All of this is based upon the amount of data and the granular nature of the data that these platforms have. How much is known about how these algorithms that that you know are dictating these wages um, make their decisions? Absolutely nothing. There have been some efforts to by both regulators and by workers to request this information. Um, and the companies have largely maintained that this is proprietary, that this is intellectual property. They've hidden behind privacy laws. And they have also said sort of fascinatingly that releasing this information would somehow be dangerous. In Europe, under GDPR, a group of workers through an organization called Worker Info Exchange sued Uber and, um, and Ola, which is sort of the equivalent of, of Uber in Asia, to get precisely the information that we're talking about. And of course, they were refused. The lower court said, no, the companies did not have to, to release this data. But a more recent um, court ruling just a couple of weeks ago um, on appeal said that they did have to reveal some of the algorithmic logic and the data that went into the algorithmic logic. We have yet to see them do it. We reached out to Uber and Lyft for comment. A Lyft spokesperson said this is a biased study that cites previously debunked surveys and is based on anecdotal evidence and cherry-picked data. Our upfront pay product shows drivers ride information and what they'll earn before accepting a ride. An Uber spokesman said, Professor Duball is simply wrong. Upfront fares are not personalized. Our fares algorithms do not use information on an individual driver's personal characteristics or past behavior on our platform in formulating a fare offer for that driver. But because these algorithms are proprietary, we aren't able to fully understand how they work or when and how they're changed. Though drivers have accumulated a lot of knowledge simply by watching the platform shift and comparing notes. Anyone who sort of spends a long period of time with drivers who work in the sector over many, many, many years will tell you that often for periods of time, drivers will have figured out something. Like they um, figure out that if they start in a particular place at a particular time and head to another area, that they will get fares that are higher yeah. or, or you know, whatever gimmick they, they think that they figured out about how, how the algorithms work and allocating work and in getting higher fares. And then everything is great for like a month and then it just all changes and it no longer works. And actually this, these constant shifts, these constant um, shifts in how wages are determined over time has been a source of grievance that has, has brought workers together um, just as it is, of course, divided them when workers get different amounts for for the same work. But it has brought workers together um, to form, you know, informal worker organizations who uh, to fight what what is happening with their wages, to fight the lack of predictability, to fight to fight the constant algorithmic shifts, and it has some, generated some sort of collective grievance. When we come back, why is this legal? Is it legal? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. One of the things that is really interesting in reading your work is that Workers, as you mentioned, know these things are an issue and are kind of pushing back in these very complicated ways. What did they say to you about kind of how they turn around and try to game these systems? In the existing social science literature, you largely hear about gaming, as you said, like how workers are constantly trying to game the system so that they can earn higher wages. Um, But what I heard a lot, particularly with long-term drivers, is such a feeling of hopelessness that they they analogize working to gambling. Wow. And that, again, was a theme that I saw over and over and over again, particularly among folks who had been driving for many years. And then the other thing that I noticed that is just sort of fascinating is how often um, drivers evoked the notion of the divine, how they were relying on God to improve their wages, how they were mm-hmm. praying for higher wages. How one, one driver said that he, was, that he had started praying again and that maybe God could help him. That sentiment was you know, very, very deeply sad and and poignant, but also um, revealing of the extent to which workers have no control over their wages and feel so helpless in the system where everything is constantly shifting. There is no predictability. Wages are personalized in the kind of state of mind that it leaves people in psychologically. And again, that is so different from how we think about work and different from how work is in, in, in sectors where this practice is not happening. Even workers at Walmart or at Burger King, they know how much they're going to make per hour. They might not know how many hours they get, which is a whole different story, but they know how much they're going to make per hour. Um, and in some places, they either their unions have bargained for a certain number of hours or they right. um, or they are guaranteed a certain number of hours by contract, et cetera. But even in low-wage sectors like in fast food, like in retail, there is some degree of wage predictability. I, for a long time, thought about this practice as being just in the on-demand economy, but then it occurred to me, like, why not? Why not? Why would why would firms not want to use these same practices if it was a way to control workers, a way to save money on labor, and a way to sow division among workers who who are used to earning the same amount but might be earning different amounts through through these personalized pay structures? Have you seen any evidence that that's happening yet? So there's one particular company that I learned of that is, they call themselves the Uber for hospitals. And they are actually a software company that licenses their software to hospitals. The hospital uses the software to allocate work. Both nurses and porters are 
allocated work through their phones, through this software, and they are evaluated by the software for their work. And the, mm. the hospitals can say, we want this, um, this digitalized work allocation to be efficient, or they can say we want it to be equitable. And most U.S. hospitals apparently say that they want it to be more efficient. So what happens is that people are allocated work. There's an evaluation made about how they did that work. And then it's all digitalized. We don't know, we don't know how the evaluations are made, et cetera. And then accordingly, they are paid. So there might be some wage floor that these that the workers get, but their evaluations, which ultimately lead to bonuses, et cetera, are determined in ways that are obscure to them. And that's very different from how a hospitals work now, um, but also that's very different from how bonuses traditionally work, where, um, where you are given a bonus for meeting a particular threshold of, of work quality um, that you can identify and understand. So in that instance, the issue is not just personalized pay, it's also obscuring what it means to be doing good work, what it means to be evaluate, uh, evaluated by, uh, by software, what goes into those evaluations and how you can contest them. I would imagine also that being paid different amounts, being evaluated in this way um, makes it a whole lot harder, harder to, to organize and unionize. You'll see drivers will say things like, oh, I don't know what's wrong with that worker over there. He made so little. I work and I make so much. Um, and so there was a way in which this allows for firms to differentiate between workers um, such that it's hard for them to, to, um, to really see common cause. And you're saying that's by design? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is historically giving two sets of workers different wages has been a way to union bust um, and to create one sort of group of favored workers versus um, another group of workers who are disfavored is sort of a way to prevent unity. And, um, and I think that this, in effect, is what is happening here. Workers actually have pontificated on this. Workers in my research have said like, well, I think that, you know, you'll always see that guy that shows that he made so much money this week. And like, you got to hmm. wonder is, did he, is he a plant? Like, did they, did they oh, specifically wow. give him a ton of money so that the rest of us feel like we're inadequate, um, that we're doing something wrong, right? As opposed to there's something wrong with the system. What, why is setting wages in this way legal? I mean, obviously these are, as there's been so much debate, independent contractors and not employees, but this still feels, I don't know, could you explain why it's legal? Yeah, it feels bad. It feels wrong. It feels really immoral. At least it might not be legal in the independent contractor context. So there is a lawsuit in California that's being brought by Towards Justice um, on behalf of a group of Uber and Lyft drivers. And the lawsuit basically says, listen, if these drivers are really small business people, then by setting their wages in this way, you are violating all kinds of antitrust laws, um, that this amounts to a form of price fixing. Hmm. And also that you're sort of violating all these business association laws um, so that there is sort of that that uh, that litigation ongoing, but we don't know what the outcome will be. And it's, again, only against these two firms, only in the state of California. The companies are fighting it tooth 
a nail. They're trying to send it to arbitration so that there isn't any precedent set. Um, and so to date, they have been allowed to do this without, without, any, um, without any effective legal pushback. Let me ask you a, a question that might sound obnoxious, but I suspect some people may wonder, like, why, if you are not a driver, if you're a, a customer, if you are someone who doesn't even really think about this sector of the economy or doesn't think about algorithms in this way, like, why why should you care? I think for two two reasons. One, like, this could be you next. Um, like, you know, the, the nursing example shows how this can really seep into other sectors. And two, because in this country, what the system of American meritocracy, however flawed it might be, is rooted in is the idea that if you work hard and long and well, that you can, quote unquote, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make a living. This practice fundamentally undermines that possibility. It undermines the possibility that there is any association between hard work and the amount of time you labor. It undermines the possibility or the thought or the belief that there is any relationship between skill and and wages. It puts us in sort of a brave new world where work is a gamble. Hmm. And I think across the political spectrum, we can agree that working for a large multinational corporation that has billions of dollars in venture capital funding should not mean working in a way such that work feels like a gamble or that work is a gamble. Um, It it really sort of undermines how we understand the purpose of work, which is to lend security and certainty to life and to fulfill our life's basic needs. Any way other than, I guess, mandating these companies kind of crack open their algorithms to, to stop this practice? Yeah, I think that it is ripe. It is a ripe moment to ban it altogether. There's no reason that these companies should be allowed to provide or offer workers personalized pay. And you don't really need to see the algorithms or the data to create a ban like that. Vina Dubal, thank you so much for coming on and for talking with me. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate the time. Vina Dubal is a professor of law at UC Law San Francisco. Sergio Avidian is a senior contributor at The Rideshare Guy. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Shannon Palace. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. <laughs>